You may be seated. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 12 this afternoon. And it's been a while, just as a brief, brief reminder, we, we were recently um, looking at the story of three individuals who were all reluctant to follow Jesus, and they had their various reasons and excuses for not being available at that time to follow him. Here, what we'll see in Luke 10 uh, is a group of 72 disciples who immediately respond in obedience. Luke is the only gospel writer who um, records this episode, and so it seems perfectly suited as uh, a balance to the previous section. It's a response. It's, it's showing that there were disciples, there were faithful disciples who were honoring um, the command to follow Jesus. Evangelism exists because worship does not. John Piper says something similar to that in Let the Nations Be Glad. He talks about missions existing because worship does not. And you think, well, wait a second, that doesn't make sense. What he means is it doesn't exist in the fullness in which God has prepared himself to be worshipped by his people. There are still those in unreached nations who have yet to respond to the gospel message, who have yet to involve themselves in worship or at least right worship. There is a sense in which everyone is created to worship someone or something, right? But they are turned other to, to, to people or themselves other than God. And so it's not a right worship. But because, because of that, because there is unbelief and it is a rampant unbelief, we evangelize. We send missionaries, and so Jesus, in this passage, in his own ministry, was already beginning to send disciples to do the work that he would eventually commission his 12 to do. At the end of Matthew 28, 19, you read of the great commission specifically given to the 12, but here you see him giving that command to go and appointing these 72. So God responds to a rebellious, unbelieving, and fallen world by giving his son, and then commissioning his followers to share that good news with others. Jesus instructs his disciples here in the essentials of evangelistic ministry before sending them out to do the work. Well, unbelief, as you may already know, still exists. It's still here today. It appears to be just as active as it ever was. And so we should assume that there will be some parallel application for us today from this text. It's not identical. We're not all appointed to the same exact task. You don't all have the same exact calling. We're not all called to go out and to leave all of our possessions behind in the manner that these disciples were called to do. But there will be some modern opportunities in this gospel age to go out just like they did. We ought to consider our own involvement in that critical mission. What is it that we're doing? Are we praying for those who go? Are we going? Are we supporting them who go? What's your role in the kingdom work of evangelism? Well, the first step in making disciples is participating in the evangelization of unbelievers. 
We want to know Christ ourselves so that we might make him known to others. We're called to make disciples, and that requires evangelism. That's the first step in making a disciple. And so we want to be disciples who make disciples. In the Vine Project, uh, project it's a, a book the leadership is studying right now, Colin Marshall and Tony Payne argue that the gathering of all nations around the throne of God in Revelation is not so much a celebration of cultural diversity as a celebration of how God has overcome the one foundational problem that all the nations share, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. All right, so evangelism is a means of magnifying the grace and glory of our God. That is our primary motivation in going out. It is the recognition that we have sinned and fall short of his glory and are justified by his grace freely as a gift. And so we go out to offer that gracious gift to others. So before we read it, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding this passage. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again that we come to your word and we come to learn, we come to grow and to be challenged and edified by this word. Lord, this is a convicting um, concept to consider for many. Lord, I think many of us feel weak in terms of our role in evangelism. Lord, whether we fear going, whether we fear rejection from others, Lord, whether we fear the ability to answer the kinds of questions we might face. Lord, help us to, to set those fears aside, to listen to this passage, to be encouraged by it, and to respond appropriately to it. Again, we ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear this truth, and hearts that would be softened to apply it in whatever way you see fit, by your Spirit. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Read with me Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking that they provide, uh, what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to your feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. 
I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Amen. This is God's holy word. I thought I'd look at this passage as I typically do in three different sections. Um, First of all, I want us to consider how we are to go. Some of the details that he gives in verses 1 through 4 describe maybe how we might go. And then in verses 5 through 9, we'll consider where we are to stay. And then in verses 10 through 12, when we are to leave. So how to go, where to stay, and when to leave. All of this in relationship to this calling towards evangelism. Notice, first of all, in verse 1, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them. This did not involve the twelve. This was 72 other disciples who were with them. Um, These are the 72 who are especially appointed and called to the task. So evangelism, as I've said, it may not look exactly like these disciples had been given. Our involvement and role in evangelism is going to look differently. Um, But it's not simply reserved for like the inner circle. It's not simply reserved for the leadership. Jesus in fact, kept the 12 with him in this case and sent out 72 others. He was expanding this offer of involvement in the ministry to these others. Now, that doesn't mean that he, he invited everyone and only 72 responded. He specifically appointed 72, it says. And so you can make some distinctions here. Not everyone is going to be appointed to the same task of evangelism. Not everyone is going to be called to the same kind of work. Right, uh, we'll have different roles, but everyone can participate in some way. Right? We can all be um, informed about the task and involved in the task and supporting through prayer. So that, that's the first thing I want you to see there is that this was an expansion from those the uh, original 12 disciples to another 72 who go out two by two. Um, those who are disciples ought to be about the task of making disciples. The second thing I want to point out from that verse, from verse 1, is that they went out two by two. And I think this does help us to see the importance and value of partnership. Uh, courage is needed, and it's easy to become discouraged in the work of evangelism. It can set in, and so partnerships are essential there to spur one another on. Um, this seems to follow a pattern of, of wisdom in the New Testament. You find something similar in Mark chapter 6, verse 7, uh, where Jesus sends out the original 12, two by two. Uh, the book of Acts is full of examples of disciples operating in teams, and it's almost always partnerships of two. You have Peter and John, Barnabas and Saul, Judas and Silas, Paul and Silas, Timothy and Silas, and then finally, Timothy and Erastus. Now, there's other examples of, of some ministering on their own, like Stephen, for example. You can point to examples of that taking place, but you really find a, almost a pattern of partnerships. It's, it, it's like that was the, the goal was to find someone to go with them, to be that source of encouragement and strength. And, and also, uh, it would allow them to serve as valid witnesses to anything that they saw. Uh, according to you know Old Testament 
Uh, Deuteronomy 17.6 speaks to the need for two witnesses, two or more witnesses. So partnerships provide accountability. Uh, leaders who, who have no accountability, who, who go off on their own and who, who want to be alone or at least want to have uh, no peer accountability ought to be avoided. We need one another in this high calling. Secondly, in verse 2 there, we see the foundation of prayer. He said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. That's the foundation of earnest prayer. God is sovereign. This is a work that God must do, but we do have the responsibility to engage ourselves in fervent prayer, asking for his blessing on the work of ministry. Um, We see something similar in in James chapter 5, verse 16. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Uh, Some translations say the, the prayer of a, or the fervent prayer of a righteous person. Here you see in in Luke 10 that we are to pray earnestly. There's to be exertion and effort. You think of our model of prayer in Christ, in Gethsemane, who was sweating like great drops of blood. He was praying so earnestly for the church. Hendrickson also points out the word here is laborers, not loafers. Let every minister, evangelist, missionary, etc. take note. That's a healthy dose of conviction. Thirdly, we see a a need for a proper perspective. In verse 3, go your way, behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. So expect to face opposition in this work. You don't go out thinking this is going to be great. Everyone's going to love me. Not going to happen. Uh, Don't be blindsided by the devil's tactics. Opponents of the gospel will want to drown out the words of the evangelists. But we should also guard against the challenges from within the church. I think oftentimes that's where our, our challenge begins. Satan will take every opportunity to introduce confusion and misdirection about our calling to the work of evangelism in order to establish a sustained indifference toward outsiders. You know, well, I'm just not gifted in that area, or I I really don't feel like that's for me, and and if enough people say that, then really we don't have anyone going out. Um, There can be a lot of confusion around this idea, and it but we should be involved as much as, as we can be, I think, in this work. And we should go out with the right perspective that we will face trials, we will face opposition, but we'll, it will be for your good that you're facing it. The Lord will strengthen you through it. Um, in verse 4, you see they're called to go without possessions, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and don't even greet anyone on the road. So they were to leave behind any excess baggage. This isn't saying go barefoot. It's saying don't carry additional belongings. Don't carry extra bags to to put all of your belongings in. 
Go with just what you're wearing. Go with the one pair of sandals that you have. And then allow the Lord to provide for you. Right? They were to be entirely dependent upon God in this work. And the task was so urgent that they didn't have time to dawdle in idle chat. They didn't have time to waste in chit-chat. So J.C. Ryle says, Our Lord did not intend his disciples to neglect common courtesy. The very next verse enjoins the use of, courteous, of a courteous salutation on visiting a house. So you have that, peace be to this house in the very next verse. He's not saying ignore everyone who's saying hello to you. You know, just, just rudely put your head down and walk on by. And, and the point, though, is that he's, he's telling them not to stop for, for pleasantries in order to emphasize the urgency of their mission. They couldn't be delayed by elaborate customs. And, and in, in this area, in this, at this time, these kind of customary salutations could take a long time. And so he was encouraging them, don't delay. Get to the city that I'm sending you and begin the work that you've been called to. And enjoy all the conversation you can engage in there, right? But, but don't delay on your task. And that's oftentimes what we do, isn't it? Especially tasks that we find difficult and challenging. Well, you know, I had to stop because my shoelace was untied and I needed to pick up this thing or I needed to talk to so-and-so and all of a sudden, oh, I don't have any time to make that difficult phone call. I don't have any time to stop by my friend's place. So the Lord is telling them that the task is urgent. And you have similar language here that, um, it, in the Old Testament in 2 Kings chapter 4. When the Shunammite's son died, Elisha sends his servant Gehazi to the boy. Uh, to lay his staff upon the boy's face. And he tells him, don't stop for any greetings along the way. Almost the exact same phrasing in the Old Testament that you find here. So it's, it's obviously an emphasis upon the urgency. The boy is, is, has died. You need to get there quickly. Don't delay. So the task remains urgent for us today. Right? Because none of us have any idea how much longer we have or how much longer our loved ones have. And so this might be our last opportunity to share the gospel with them. We should be urgent to do that task as much as we dread it. We should be urgent, urgent to go and not delay. Secondly, in verses 5 through 9, we are considering the idea of where they should stay. So they get to the city, and the first thing they're to do is enter into a home wherever... Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be on this house. So they're instructed to offer peace there. And this instruction has been sort of turned into a very elaborate strategy. You can find books that encourage a strategy that employs unbelievers in the work of planting churches based upon this text. Right? To, to find someone who is a person of peace right? and to... Uh, and to utilize them as, as much as they're willing to work with you and to partner with them. And so as ridiculous as it sounds, it's, it's quite common for missionaries to base their whole strategy of reaching a culture or of, of doing a, a new work in an area of, of finding a person of peace, which does not and, and usually is not 
considered to be a believer. In fact, I, I recall reading an article uh, recently about someone who, what, a missionary agency that was encouraging people to, to find unbelievers, right? to, to not find a believer because they would, they would um, probably be a conflict with you. Instead, find an unbeliever and work with them and allow them to lead studies and like Bible studies and conversations, discussion groups as you try to build a network. It's remarkably confounding to understand why that would be considered a wise strategy. What is in mind here is not simply a, a just someone who is willing to cooperate with you. It's not the peaceful cooperation of unbelievers that Jesus is referring to. He, he is offering to bring the peace of his presence to those who respond to his message of peace. And so the, this is a, a generic greeting, peace be upon this house. But if a son of peace is there, the peace that you're bringing will rest upon him. The peace of the, the message that you have to give to them will rest upon them if they're willing to receive it. In other words, this is the free offer of the gospel. Isaiah 52, 7 says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation. That's, that's what peace is associated with here. It's peace with God. It's, it's associated with salvation and good news and happiness. And so you're to go and offer that peace to others and then to remain where it is, re where it is uh, joyfully received to encourage them. Um, and in verses 7 and 8, it says, To remain at the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. This is, this is speaking about not being fickle about where, where you stayed or received hospitality. For these disciples, they would go into a city and maybe they thought, well, we have other people who would be willing to receive us and they've got a bigger home and I, I saw the food they were bringing back from the market and I wouldn't mind having that for dinner. Maybe we should you know, jump around from home to home and, and, and enjoy the hospitality that we're offered here, not, not just commit to one place. But, but he says, no, commit to the one place that, is, that has opened their doors and stay there. Don't be jumping around, again, delaying the task that you're called to. That doesn't mean that that was the only home that they were to to be a witness in. They were to use that as sort of a, a mission base from which they would go out and into the streets. As we'll see later, they, if they're not to be received, they stand in the streets and rebuke them. So they're to offer peace, and then they're to receive the provisions of a home that op is open to them. Now, think about this. It's important to note, most of, it's assumed that these 72 were Jews. Uh, that's who's following him. Now, there may be a mixture of, of some Gentiles in this, but, but more than likely, they're, they're Jews who have been sent out, and they're going into a Gentile region. So these are, this is a reference to some dietary restrictions that people would, would sense as they enter into these homes, and he's saying, receive what is given to you. Receive what is offered. Don't let that be a restriction to who you will minister to. They're encouraged to eat whatever without question, and that only makes sense under, under the new covenant. And I think it does create a question for those in 
kind of the Messianic Jewish community who today contend that those dietary restrictions remain in effect. I wonder how they understand this verse um, because it seems to contradict that idea. Jesus expects there to be an offer of hospitality in response to salvation. That's something to consider. As you go and offer peace, the expectation is that someone will say, please stay with us. Please enjoy our hospitality. Please let us serve you. Please let us feed you. Hospitality is directly linked here to salvation. Wherever the gospel spread in the early church, hospitality thrived. We see it over and over in the book of Acts. Again, J.C. Ryle says, we must beware of thinking too much about our meals and our furniture and our houses and all those many things which concern the life of the body. Blessed are they who feel like pilgrims and strangers in this life and whose best things are all to come. So yes, don't, don't, don't be um, preoccupied by possessions, but instead recognize the, the value of hospitality and consider your own role in offering hospitality to others. If you've been the recipient of peace, is, is hospitality something that, that you're inclined to show others? And do you offer peace? How are you ministering to others? In, in verse 9, they're called to heal the sick and to say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. That was the ministry that, that Jesus had equipped them for, that they would be successful in their healing ministry and that they would also speak. So compassion involves both our acts of mercy and the peace that is only found in the gospel, sharing that, speaking that peace. So I think it involves both our actions and our words. Ephesians chapter 5, or sorry, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 through 17 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. Who has, made, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. And so he continues to do so today. He continues to bring that offer of peace through missionaries that are sent out by the church today. So what is your role in that work? Again, not everyone will receive that message with joy. Not everyone wants to hear the message of peace that is offered through Christ. So we need to know when to leave. And that's what he speaks about in verses 10 through 12. First of all, whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. 
So the first thing they're to do is, if they're rejected, is to stand in the streets into a, in a public place. Make sure that they are clearly seen and heard as they wipe the dust from their feet. Almost, it's like the Old Testament prophets that were called to act out the judgment that God was declaring upon them. And that judgment would be severe. This promise that it would be more severe than it was for Sodom is meant to add an impassioned plea to the disciples as they departed. That their, their warning and their rebuke was not to be just sort of cold and callous or indifferent, but it was to be filled with compassion, the recognition that the work that they were called to was urgent and the warning was severe. So even the inhospitable nature of Sodom was better than those who reject the free offer of the gospel. Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, they all refer to Sodom when describing God's just judgment. William Hendrickson says, as there are degrees of glory, so there are also degrees of punishment. You actually get that from this text here. Right? The idea that their judgment will be more severe there, there will be greater, more severe punishments as there are degrees of glory, as you'll find in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So this task of warning and rebuking those who reject the message of the gospel is probably the most dreaded aspect of evangelism. It's probably what causes most of us to remain silent to begin with, right out of fear of having to give this warning. Are, are you willing to to rebuke and warn those who reject the gospel. Again, listen to J.C. Ryle. I, uh, I thought about putting this in my own words, and he just does it so well, I'm just going to read it. He says, Let us lay these things to heart and beware of unbelief. It is not open sin and fragrant, or flagrant profligacy. Proflig- I think I'm pronouncing that right. I had to look it up, but excessive living, flagrant profligacy, which are alone, which ruin souls. So it's not open sin or this excessive living, which alone ruins souls. We have only to sit still and do nothing. When the gospel is pressed on our acceptance and we shall find ourselves one day in the pit. We need not run into excess of riot We need not openly oppose true religion. We have only to remain cold, careless, indifferent, unmoved, and unaffected, and our end will be in hell. Pretty powerful. And if we kept that in mind as we saw the lost all around us throughout the day, I think it would fill us with compassion to offer the gospel message. We should take into account Jesus' instructions regarding how they were to go. They should go with a partner as much as possible. We should pray before, during, and after our evangelistic opportunities. We should especially pray for more laborers to go. We should expect opposition and do our best not to be hindered by an obsession with possessions or with excessive idle chatter. Our first task is to offer the peace that surpasses understanding and to be ready to receive hospitality from anyone who responds positively 
And as the recipients of peace ourselves, we ought to be hospitable to others and to offer ministry to them. And finally, we should be willing to rebuke and to warn those who reject the offer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is an important reality that you call us to. It's an important opportunity that the church is called to, to evangelize, to love our neighbors in this way. And sometimes that love is filled with harsh words of rebuke and warning that they need to hear. Lord, move us from an indifferent spirit towards the lost. Fill us with compassion for them. May we have eyes to see them with the same eyes that Jesus had as he wept over Jerusalem. And Lord, may we be willing to sacrifice our possessions, our time, our treasure, our talents. May we be willing to give that to your kingdom purposes and to be available to do this work that maybe we fear doing, knowing that in our weakness, you will be strong. That your, that your strength and your power will be made manifest in our weakness. And may that truth go before us this week as we may have opportunities and give us boldness to speak the truth in love. For your glory we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.